Please stand with me if you're able and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be verses 19b through 31. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, luring him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and set him, sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we want to welcome all who are visiting with us this morning as we work our way through the book of Acts. We pick up where we left off last Lord's Day, verse 19b. Before we look at it together, let's ask for the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we ask now that uh, by the presence of your Holy Spirit, grab hold of our hearts this morning, enable me to communicate your truth by the power of the Spirit, bring to life those who don't believe, encourage those who do. For your glory. Amen. Um, As recipients of God's grace, um, we can understand, hopefully, um, the grace granted to the Apostle Paul here, Saul, as Saul's conversion reminds us of the significance of divine initiative. The fact that um, God makes clear in the book of Romans, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God, who takes initiative to save the least likely people, such as Saul the persecutor, reminds us that uh, we cannot pronounce anyone hopeless um, as far as conversion is concerned. Therefore, we continue to pray for those we love, for those we know, who have yet to be converted. God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over the souls of men. God is sovereign over time. And God is sovereign over events therein. We saw that last Lord's Day because it was at the time that Saul was en route from Jerusalem intending to root out in Damascus, or from Damascus, um, those who were of the way, those who followed Christ, those who were Christians. 
breathing, we read in the text, threats, breathing out threats and murder against Christ's church, seeking to arrest men and women of the way when he himself was arrested by the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ while en route. Who, Christ that is, intruded upon Saul's life, violating his free will. You get that? When suddenly, back in verse 3, a light from heaven flashed around him, causing him to fall to the ground, to go blind, and he hears these words, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, at that moment, Jesus did not say, Saul, are you willing? Are you willing to make me Lord? He is Lord whether Saul believes that or not. Jesus did not say, Paul, are you willing to make me Lord of your life? Um, If you do, repeat this prayer after me. (laughs) Instead, verse 6, get up, enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. This one who left Jerusalem in strength entered Damascus in weakness and humility. The raging lion is now a bleating lamb, according to God's sovereign purposes. The outward light of the resurrected, risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ struck him blind while the inward illuminating life gave him faith to believe, transformed his life. It's like the creative command of the Lord in the beginning. God said, let there be light, and there, there was light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, look at it on the screen, Paul The Apostle Paul, this Saul, explains the process of conversion in a way that is reminiscent of his own experience on the road to Damascus. Look at it. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine. Did you get that? Made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, that is to say, even the faith we have to believe is a, is a gift. It's a gift. So this one who was to put people into bondage, apprehended by the Lord, given a call from the Lord, now has a call to release people from their bondage through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. This is a transformed man. This is a transformed life. And I want us to see, beloved, this morning, the traits of a transformed life in Christ. The traits of a transformed life. Okay, what are those traits? Or to use some synonymous terms, what are the attributes? What are the affections? What are the character, the criterion, the fingerprints, the features of one transformed by Christ? Saul in response to God's grace-filled work, becomes Paul, a man filled with love for Christ, a man who understands what it is to be loved by Christ. From Acts 9 onward, 
This man is absorbed with the love of Christ and an infectious zeal for God that spreads to those around him. So we'll see, we'll see these traits this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this man, this Saul, the Apostle Paul, speaks of being constrained and compelled by the love of Christ. This is, this is the driving force of this man's life. It's the love of Christ shown to him on this day to save his soul. And Paul embraced the mission, having embraced the embrace of the Lord. Jesus set out to save the man. In response, Paul embraces his embrace. And he's compelled by the love, the constraining power of God's love in Jesus Christ for him. And notice, he, this man is immediately engaged. The moment of his conversion, he, he is occupied, involved, committed to be with God's people and to declare God's word. Traits of transformation. To be with God's people and to proclaim the Savior. Verse 19b, notice. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. This, these are just fellow believers that lived in the area. The very people he was in pursuit of to throw into prison. They're now his brothers in Christ. You remember what Ananias said when he was converted? God tells him to go to the street called Straight. There's a man praying there. First words out of Ananias' mouth, what? Brother Saul, my brother. Imagine that. Verse 20, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. So having been filled with the Holy Spirit back in verse 17, now he was indwelt by the Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit, but when we read the words filled here with the Holy Spirit, it is always associated with gospel-empowered preaching. He's filled with the Spirit. And it's displayed here, notice, immediately. So he goes to what he knows, and that is the local synagogue. This Jew, this former Jew, this, I mean this former Pharisee, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of the highest order. He goes to the synagogue and he proclaims. And what's the substance of his proclamation? Notice what it's not. It's not a personal testimony. I used to be sad, now I'm glad because of Jesus. Right? How often do you hear that? Instead of preaching, it's, personal testimonies are great. But that's not declaring the gospel. I don't think there's a, a, a more exciting conversion story than the Apostle Paul. He will give his testimony throughout his ministry, but his focus, his locus of focus, is the proclamation of the gospel, evangelism. You know, sometimes you hear, um, preach the gospel at all times, and when absolutely necessary, what? Use words. Friends. You can't preach the gospel without words. Your transformed life is by the grace of God. We rejoice in that, that God takes people, he converts them, he transforms them, he changes them, he continues to change us, but that's not the gospel. We're a product of the gospel. He preaches Jesus as the son of God, which means... His birth, his ministry, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension fulfills Scripture, meaning the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. That Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of Man who has been given dominion, glory, and a kingdom from the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is... God the Father, Daniel 7, fulfilled. 
Jesus, Son of God. He who came veiled in human flesh to redeem all that was lost, as I prayed earlier, in the first Adam, Jesus, the second Adam, comes to earth, takes on human flesh in order to bear God's curse against sin and sinners, having never sinned. The second Adam, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15. Scripture's clear, all have sinned and fall short of the the glory of God. Therefore, we are prohibited from God's radiant holy presence. In other words, you don't go to heaven because you're a sinner. The consequence, the wages of sin is death. You've earned your wage, I've earned mine. You will die. It is appointed unto man once to die. You will keep that appointment. It is appointed to man once to die. And then the judgment, judgment due for sin and its assault against holy God, our creator. Consequence thereof, eternity without God. That's what hell is. Where Jesus said is to be cast into outer darkness where there is wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus taught more about hell than all the prophets put together. Paul, he will go on to declare that this Jesus, the Son of God, look at it, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, God the Father, made him Jesus, the son who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's vicarious atonement. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He atoned for the sins of his sheep, of his people. He made substitution there, a substitutionary sacrifice propitiation was made there, a word that means God's just punishment that is due to mankind. His wrath has been satisfied in his son who became sin on our behalf, having never sinned. This is the gospel, friends. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Why is there good news? Because there's bad news. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. You, 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 you have to be perfect to get to heaven, sinless, from the womb to the tomb, and the fact that you go to the tomb is proof that you're not sinless because the consequence of sin is death. You need a substitute. God has one. Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. This is what the man preaches in the synagogue. He's buried. He was raised. He ascended, just as he said he would. Any other message of salvation that I read from Galatians is another what? It's another gospel. And anyone who preaches another gospel, this, the Bible says, let him be accursed. All roads lead to heaven so long as you're sincere. Is that another gospel? You better believe it. God's not a schizophrenic. He doesn't have numerous plans. He's not confused. He has one way. He sent his son. Paul's converted by his son on the road on this day. He goes into the synagogue and he preaches Christ, the son of God, the gospel. Verse 21. All those hearing him continued to be amazed, saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, this Jesus, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Letters in hand, authority from Jerusalem, credentialed to arrest men and women. Isn't that the guy? The name he passionately persecuted, he now powerfully preaches traits of transformation. If you're transformed by Christ, you declare Christ. You can't contain that. You can't hide under a rock. They're utterly shocked. And notice the word destroyed there. That word tells us he must that is, Saul must have killed more than just Stephen. They laid their cloaks 
They laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul so their arms could be free in order to stone that young man to death. Destroy. Imagine the tension here. Okay, now on the, on the one hand, there would be unbelieving Jews who would now regard Saul, the, 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 the Pharisee, as a traitor. While on the other hand, you have believing Jews who would regard Saul it probably as an undercover secret agent, pretending to be in Christ in order to gather information of those who believe in Christ, to find out where they live, who are their family members, in order to go and to, to, to bind them and to carry them off. Can you imagine this? They're, they're, they're amazed. This guy? The persecutor of persecutors preaches Christ, the Son of God, the royal anointed one, the promised one. So Paul, notice, he identifies himself immediately with Jesus Christ, first and foremost by being baptized, identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection. He's baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He then identifies himself immediately with God's people, the body of Christ. He identifies with the head, Jesus, and he associates immediately with the body, the church. Traits of transformation. Trait of transformation, you love being with God's people. Okay, let me say this before we move on. This traits of transformation, looking at Paul's life. First and foremost, beloved, you're not Paul. I'm not Paul. We do not have the same call as Paul. He was an apostle chosen by God for a very unique ministry, uh, a very unique individual within redemptive history. Nevertheless, nevertheless, as Paul writes in his, his epistles, we are to imitate him, and I read, from Paul, as we too have been called out of darkness and into this marvelous light and are to declare the excellencies of the one who called us, as well as being with God's people. Traits of transformation. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, I exhort you to be imitators of me. In chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, he says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So it applies, though you're not Paul. There aren't apostles today. <laughs> we bear his name. We fellowship with God's people. We fly his colors, traits of transformation. Uh, Derek Thomas, a pastor, has written a commentary on Acts, and um, in this chapter, he tells of his own conversion, December of 1971. Um, he was studying mathematics um, at the University of Wales, and when the new semester began, one of his professors, who had an unusual um reputation of being an evangelical Christian would oftentimes testify of Christ in class. So the first day of this new semester, after his conversion, in the middle of a lecture on mathematics, this professor turned to Derek and said, Thomas, his last name, you've been converted. Tell us about it. Derek Thomas goes on, to describe how he was trembling and stumbling for words, having been put on the spot. But afterwards, when everyone, everybody had gone, the professor approached Thomas, and he said this, I believe it is important for we Christians to nail our colors to the mast from the very beginning. And Derek Thomas was grateful to that professor for that call on that day as a young man. Now, to, to nail colors 
to the mast um, is a nautical term. It's an old um, naval term. And it relates to, to sailing ships. And they would run colors, certain colored flags, up and down a, a rope pulley, a hoist. You, you'd raise them and you'd lower them um, up against the, the mast. And, and Navy vessels still do this to this day. You would communicate uh, many things with, with those colors, primarily what country you represented. And it was fair game to hoist up false colors, a ruse in battle, a deceptive tactic. You could be, in other words, a British ship and um, fly on a particular day uh, the colors of Spain or France. And if your enemy bought it thinking you were a friend, guess what? That's their problem. It's fair game. Now, once you get close enough in battle, you engage, you fire your shots, you pull down your deceptive colors, and you raise your own colors. But to nail them to the mast, instead of raising and lowering your colors by ropes and pulleys, you would nail them into the mast. An expression that said, this is who we are, come what may. To lower your colors, your own colors, to lower them in the midst of battle was a sign of surrender. To nail them to the mast says, we will never surrender. Kill me. We will not surrender. This is who we are. This is where we're from. And that will be the case until the end of the battle. See the picture? That's Paul. Saul, who tried so hard to tear down the colors of the gospel, immediately upon conversion, nailed gospel colors to the mast. He's with God's people. He proclaims God's word. And it's important that we do that from the outset as well, beloved. Early on, nail them to the mast by grace. Amen? By grace. By grace, you can do that. By grace, you're enabled to do that. Now, in, in doing so, verse 22, notice. Notice now what happens. Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by what? Notice, look at the text. By proving this Jesus is the Christ. Proving that this Jesus, he is the royal anointed one. He is the one promised in the Old Testament. Now, this word proving is the idea of placing together Old Testament prophecy up alongside Old Testament prophecy, one after another. Proving, proving, proving he is the Christ. Proving how Jesus is the key component that completely unlocks the meaning of Scripture, i.e., the Old Testament. Prophecy after prophecy. Now, remember this. Saul would have had large portions of the Old Testament memorized. But he would not have understood a word as it ought to have been. Now, Saul's knowledge of the Old Testament is becoming increasingly Christo-centric, Christ-centered. The Old Testament is all about Christ. It's always been all about Christ. And he preaches him. Paul finally now, finally sees Jesus through all the pages of the Old Testament here proving him as God's promised Messiah. He goes back, I'm sure, all the way to Genesis 3. After the fall, he sees now that the seed of the woman promised who will come and crush the head of the serpent, that is Satan, it's Jesus for the first time. 
He correctly understands the seed of Abraham that will bless the nations. That seed is Jesus. He properly sees how the exodus out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, foreshadows the ultimate exodus that Jesus will provide. An exodus from the consequence of sin. The slavery of sin. He sees that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Remember, they slaughtered a lamb before they made the exodus, and they painted the, 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 the blood of the lamb on their door frames. So when the, the, the angel of death came over, what, what would he do? He would pass over those who were covered by the blood. He sees now the Passover lamb is Jesus. He preaches him. He understands the seed of David who will rule the world. It's Jesus. He rightly comprehends the law. He rightly comprehends its fulfillment, recognizing Jesus as God's true Israel. He now understands the purpose of the land of Israel. It points forward to something greater. The promised land, a new heaven and a a new earth. He gets it. He sees it. So he preaches the floodgates have been opened to Paul because Christ opens the meaning of Old Testament scripture. This is what he's doing. Beautiful? Amen. The Bible, beautiful. Powerful. All of it, everything points to Jesus. It always has. Here he is preaching Jesus, the very son of God. In the synagogue. Glorious. Glory. Now, proving that Jesus is the Christ, proving that Jesus is the only way to the Father, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When you declare that and prove that through Scripture, you can count on persecution. And here now, the persecutor, he he was the chief persecutor. He's now persecuted. Traits of transformation. I I doubt if anyone's going to take your head as they did Paul's. Chop it off. You will be mocked. If you bear these traits of transformation, you're going to be mocked at least. Ridiculed, hated despised, rejected, traits of transformation, suffering. Verse 23, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Now, somewhere in this chronology, and I hinted at this earlier, uh, we have to fit Saul's visit um, to Arabia, okay? You can go back to Galatians for for a moment. Listen to these words, Galatians 1, verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So we see that between verse 25 and verse 31, uh, there's a period somewhere around two and a half, three years. So the question is, when exactly did Saul go to Arabia? So a few possibilities. One is that he went immediately after his baptism, came back to Damascus, and Luke now picks up the account. Another is that he began to preach immediately in the synagogues, after which he went to Arabia, comes back to Damascus, and then trouble breaks out, and he's lowered down the wall. The third, and I believe most probable, is this. This is the most reasonable account. He went to Arabia after he was lowered down in the basket. 
and then returned to Damascus. And then after three years, he went to Jerusalem to be with the apostles. Take your pick. All right? I think the last is best. So let's say, let, let, let's presume here, he, he preached immediately in the synagogues. He obviously was baptized. He began to preach in Damascus. Um, persecution breaks out. He, he's lowered down the wall. He heads off to Arabia for three years, discipled by the resurrected Lord himself, um, somehow, some way, and then returns to Damascus and then proceeds to Jerusalem to be with the apostles, and that's where we pick up the account, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. <laughs> Can you imagine this? Scared, they're, they're petrified of this man. He must have been a beast. Talk about bullying. They were afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had talked to him, how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus, and he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, that means Greek-speaking Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him away to Tarsus. Saul was from Tarsus. So notice how the Lord provided for this man. Upon his conversion, who's there? An unknown disciple by the name of Ananias. Here he heads to Jerusalem. He wants to associate with the apostles and God provides Barnabas, the encourager. God provides bridges. It's a bridge of provision. Now, notice this boldness with which he preaches. You know, we read these accounts, and, and we sit here, and we assume that, that Paul's boldness was probably a product of his personality. You know, whatever he did, he just gave 100%, whether he was killing Christians or preaching Jesus. It's just part of his character. That's not true. That's not true. Paul will later remind believers through his epistles, through his letters, that his preaching, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, was fraught with weakness, fear, and much what? Trembling. And he will go on to plead for the prayers of the saints, that the church would pray on his behalf for him to declare the gospel fearlessly. He's a finite man. He's a needy man. That is to say, beloved, gospel boldness is not brash self-confidence. You never want to preach Christ in your own self-confidence. It's God's gift. Boldness is God's gift to those who ask for it. You'll recall back in chapter 4, the church was being persecuted in Jerusalem. And what did the people of God pray on that day? Look at it. Chapter 4, verse 29. Now, Lord, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all boldness. You get down to verse 31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Question. When was the last time you begged for the grace of God to be bold in proclaiming his truth. If you don't ask, you don't get. Amen. That's the account. Beloved brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, brethren, sistren, are your colors flying? Christ? Are they nailed to the mast? I'm not asking, do you have a Christian bumper sticker on the back of your car? <laughs> or that you wear Christian t-shirts or a Christian hat that says, not of this world. You know what trips me out, I'll tell you. 
when I see a $100,000 car blinged out. And if you have a blinged out $100,000 car, fine, just serve Christ. But don't put a not of this world sticker on the back of it. It just doesn't make sense. Unless to them, not of this world means that they're from the alien nation or some crazy thing. Anyway. My question is this. Do the people in your life, do, do your family members, your neighbors, your coworkers know you are a Christian? Are your colors nailed to the mast? In other words, are you seriously engaged in the mission? The kingdom of Jesus Christ on this earth for this time, called out of darkness and into this marvelous light. Do the colors, let me ask this, let me ask this. Do you fly the colors of salvation is through Jesus Christ alone on Sunday? And then when you go to work on Monday through Friday, you, you raise up different colors, neutral colors, that say, Jesus is my way, but he's not the only way. Friends, the hostility of this world continually attempts to squeeze us into its mold, the mold of plurality, the mold of relativism. If that's the case, Christ died in vain. You fly his colors, not false colors. Not those are deceptive colors. Don't do that says the word of God. If anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. If you declare that Jesus is one way of many ways, that's another gospel. Don't do that. You don't want to do that. Beg for forgiveness, repent, and he will forgive you. And carry on. Some, some professing Christians, unfortunately, um, want to remain uncommitted so as to keep their options open not fully having to identify with a person or cause, i.e., Christ and his church. Amen? There's a lot to learn from the living text of Scripture. Now, regarding Christian fellowship with, with Paul, notice verse 19b. For several days he was with the disciples... These are common, everyday, ordinary believers at Damascus. Look at verse 26. When he arrives in Jerusalem, the first thing he does, he attempts to join the disciples. Friends, if, <laughs> if anyone would have had difficulty being part of the church and feeling accepted and loved, it would be Paul. If anyone had the excuse, nobody likes me, I just don't feel a connection there. It was Paul. You know, I'm different than, you know, after all, look at all the families here. They have children, and I'm single. Not Paul. Can you imagine the excuses Paul could have listed as to why he doesn't belong at this local assembly? But you don't see that. He pressed in. He made the attempt to fellowship. And this was no one and done effort, my friends. Well, we visited there, but get over that. He pursued fellowship. Friends, if you are a Christian, you have no excuse for not joining with God's people. And let me tell you this. You certainly have no excuse for not wanting to be with God's people. I've heard people say this who claim to be Christian. I love Jesus. I just can't stand Christians. What does Jesus love more than anything else? His church, his bride. To anyone who holds that corrupt way of thinking, you're likely not a Christian. But what you are is a liar. I'm not calling you a liar. The Bible calls you a liar. 1 John chapter 4 says this. For anyone who says they love God and hate their brother, they're a, they're a liar. 
It's impossible to love God who you cannot see and hate your brother who you can see. We are his bride. He shed his blood for his church and he demands, the head of the church demands that we press into fellowship with one another over the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why most of you are here this morning, I know. Amen. Now, this is also not a case of, well, I go to church and hear God's people, so what? What are you talking about? Well, what I'm talking about is this. I'm talking about an actual way of life. <laughs> an actual way of life. To, to make it your business to be with God's people. That's, that's what this is about. Because, friends, refusing to be with God's people, it's a path to destruction, self-destruction. Backsliddenness begins there. He presses in. Saul, Paul, the chief persecutor, has been converted. Back into the account. He's been sent off to Tarsus. We won't hear from him again until chapter 11. So notice verse 31. Beautiful. So the church, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed peace. Ah, finally, peace. Being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, notice the church continued to increase. Do you know the secret for church growth there? It's not programs. It's not, let's make, let's make this setting cool, man. Let's make it cool so unbelievers will think it's cool. That's not what they do. It's a people who bear the traits, the features, the fingerprints of those who've been transformed by Christ. Number one, they fear God. To fear the Lord is not trepidation. It's not to feel terrorized. It's awe and reverence. This one, the glorious one, condescended to take on a human body, to die for me on a Roman cross, slaughtered. By the, sins of, by, by the hands of sinful men, yet behind it all, as we read Isaiah 53, it was God who was behind it all who said it pleased the Father to crush the Son. In my place condemned he stood. That awe, that reverence, not trepidation. They feared the Lord. And that reminds us, beloved, that true gospel ministry, a sound, solid Christian church does not need to create methodology to somehow make the church look cool to unbelievers. That's the last thing we'll ever do here. And as I've said this before, when unbelievers come here, I want them to feel loved by y'all. But if you sit here as an unbeliever, the last thing I want you to feel is comfortable under the preaching of the word of God. If you're an unbeliever, I don't want you to be comfortable. I want you to be rattled, shaken to the ground by God's grace brought to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ who saves Come to Christ and you shall be saved. Repent. That means change your thinking and change your direction and come to Christ and you'll soon realize before the foundation of the earth, he chose to die for me? Yeah, when you go read Ephesians chapter one in Romans and other portions of scripture and you'll rejoice and you'll fear the Lord. Awe, reverence. Amen. I'm looking for amens. <laughs> Sometimes I wanted to go, amen, 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 amen. Church, it's a church, nails its colors to the mast. We preach Christ and him crucified. Notice these people, verse 31, these are people who put God first. First in their worship service, first in their homes, first in raising their children, first in raising their teenage children. Oh, but my teenagers, they get bored at church. Tough luck. So what? Did you ever think the reason they don't like church is because they're not saved? Bing. I didn't want to go to church. My dad made me go to church. And you know what it produced? At the time, I didn't like it. But seeds were sown deep in my soul. So at the age of 28 and a half, 29, when God, Jesus, began to poke, 
prick, prod, this sinner, guess what came up? Truth. Truth. These people fear the Lord. Is living like that difficult? Yeah, man. Jesus said, I did not come to this earth to bring peace, but to bring a, a sword to divide a father from his son and a mother from her daughter-in-law because I'm truth and I naturally divide sinners, but it's only through my work that they'll be saved from the just punishment due. I bore it. That's the good news. This is what I want them to know. Preach it. The son of God is Jesus the Christ. That's what he does. These people receive it. Verse 31, they fear the Lord. They rejoice in the truth. Friends, if you find yourselves rarely talking about Jesus, hardly engaged in service to the people of God, called as you are, church, to loving, ministering, and encouraging those around you, the problem may not be that you don't have enough time. It's probably not that you're too busy or that you have to work too much of the time, or that opportunity simply doesn't present itself. The problem may be, and most likely is, that you've abandoned your first love. This is a 911 call. Because there's a remedy if you've abandoned your first love. That was the problem with the church at... Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, and I would direct you there, if that's you, to read this at home, for Jesus himself provides the remedy. In, in, a, in Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, the remedy is this. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember those early days of your Christianity? You were full of zeal. You understood that Jesus loves me. He poured out his blood for me. And in response, there's this reciprocal love you had for him. You were involved. You were engaged. You couldn't wait to get to church to hear God's word. Okay? Remember from where you have fallen. Second, repent. Change your thinking. Turn around. Go in the other direction. Number three, repeat those things you did at first and return to your first love. That's the remedy. Simple. Difficult, but by the grace of God, which is abundant. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Undeserved what? Favor. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Run to him. Run back to the cross. Beg of him. Cry out to him. Go to the source, if that's you. So repenting and reengaging will contribute to you being re-strengthened. Paul gained strength by simply preaching Christ. He grew in wisdom and stature. That, that echoes back to Jesus growing up as a boy. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with men and with God as the son of God. It's amazing. Now notice, to wrap up, the apostle Paul, his commitment to the mission his commitment and dedication to the Great Commission doesn't flow out of the mere command from Jesus to go. Instead, it was the product of his relationship with Jesus, compelled as he was by the love of Christ. That's why I do what I do. Dude, I'm a nothing nobody. You could go find a preacher much more gifted than I am. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. And you all serve. I had a meeting here with the elders and deacons yesterday. There's a man here serving, cleaning the church by himself, not because others aren't willing, but because the team with which he served, they've all moved out of state. Here he was alone constrained by the love of God in Christ. He's not trying to earn any merits from anybody cleaning up after us. 
Amen? That's it. Compelled by the love of Christ was the apostle Paul. He nailed his colors to the mast, not merely because of the command to go, but because of the love of Christ for him. And in all of it, Paul never tried to look cool. You ever see this cat trying to look cool? It's hard to look cool being lowered down a wall in a basket <laughs> in the dark. There's nothing dignified about that. There's no self-confidence in that. There's no coolness in that. You know, his, his, his apostleship was constantly under question. You're not an apostle. And false apostles who declared to be apostles accused him of not being an apostle. Constantly, all throughout his ministry, he never surrendered. Colors, nailed to the mast. So it's hard to look courageous or competent or dignified being lowered in a basket, so much so that he recites this incident in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in contending with regard to boasting with a group known as super apostles. And those super apostles, as I said, they were false apostles. And this is what he said. I'm qualified. Let me tell you why I'm qualified. I've been in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. I have to boast. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Verses 23 and 30. I'll boast in my weakness. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I'm Paul who was Saul. I used to kill y'all. Christ saved me. These are just traits of transformation. Traits of transformation. I serve the king. And let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about the one I serve, says the apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. The one who has who was the highest of all, the one most dignified of all, the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, Paul will write in Philippians 2, who, who, this one, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, this one, rich beyond all splendor, became poor. This one who emptied himself, Jesus, the God-man, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is, he was brought low, undignified, crucified. For this reason, for this reason, because he humbled himself, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I urge you now, if you're not a Christian, confess him now because in the end, in hell, you will confess him there with rage and gnashing of teeth. You reject him now, you don't get him then. But you will confess, you will agree, yes, he's Lord. Because he lowered himself. Paul says, I identify with his sufferings. Traits of transformation. Paul says, I embrace his embrace of me and I'm willing to be made a fool. I will mail my colors to the mast, all according to his grace, all for his Glory. Traits of transformation in the life of the Apostle Paul. I'm not Paul, you're not Paul, but we're called to imitate Paul. By grace, you have been saved. So I exhort us, not you, us. I exhort us to engage the ministry that God has entrusted to us to embrace the Lord who has called us to endure and persist in what he's called us to do, to, to bear his name and to be with God's people for God's glory in Christ. Amen?
If you're not in Christ, I urge you, I beg you, I plead as Paul did, as pleaded with unbelievers, come to Christ, come to Christ, believe, repent, you'll be saved. Become part of his family. Father, we do thank you for the finished work of your son, your glorious work in the life of the Apostle Paul. Lord, I, I want to confess on our behalf, um, as we, if we and where we have ever hoisted up neutral colors, we repent. May we nail the colors of the gospel to the mast. We need grace to do it. We need strength to do it. We need the ability that only you can provide to do it. So may we never find strength in and of ourselves, but may we be made weak to find our strength according to grace, to do what we're called to do as long as you may tarry or until we take our final breath by the finished blood of Christ. For the glory of his name we pray. Amen.